0: Hey there, listener, Eric here. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up that this episode contains some sensitive content. This is not a trigger warning, but maybe this is not the episode to listen to with the kiddos in the room. Not that you generally listen to a booze podcast with the kids anyway, but you see where I'm going with this. We're gonna be talking about sexism in the spirits industry, and there's some particularly suggestive language that we're going to address along the way. So get those earmuffs out if you need to. And now, onto the show. modern 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 Modern. we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make that a double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 168 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host modern bar cart ceo eric kozlik Thanks for joining me for this special topic episode where we zoom in to examine a specific trend or occurrence in the spirits and cocktail world and unpack what it means for you, me, and the rest of the industry. Our subject this time around is a recent flare of outrage against one of the industry's most prolific whiskey critics, Jim Murray, for his use of extensively sexualized language in his whiskey reviews. Now, there's a couple reasons why this is an unusual topic for me to cover. First, I'm not super interested in scandals, in intrigue, or the interpersonal drama that seems to interest other people. I don't watch reality TV, I couldn't tell you who got snubbed at the latest awards show, and I absolutely don't try to contaminate my passion for booze with any of that drama. Second, I'm generally a fan of free speech, even when it offends perhaps especially when it offends. I love over-the-top controversial humor. Big George Carlin guy. By and large, the more outrageous and contentious a stand-up set is, the more likely it is to get a laugh out of me. Just sort of how my brain works. So why is this scandal different? Well, I've been monitoring this issue in the news, both written and audio media, since the story broke. And unfortunately, I don't think it's been addressed very well, even by the outlets I tend to respect. So I'm going to bite the bullet, throw in my two cents in hopes that this uncomfortable problem can hopefully be a learning opportunity instead of just a temporary disturbance in the force. But before we get all serious and disappointed with the world here, let's give you the chance to make yourself a drink. And I thought what the hell let's stay on theme here so this episode's featured cocktail is the sex on the beach to make it you'll need one and a half ounces of vodka one half ounce of peach schnapps one and a half ounces of orange juice and one and a half ounces of cranberry juice as you can tell from the ingredients this is a drink that just doesn't respect itself The booze is there on a utilitarian mission to get you drunk. The peach schnapps isn't real schnapps at all, just an artificially flavored peach liqueur. And orange juice is such a wet paper bag of a citrus juice that we need cranberry to come in and save the day with some actual bitterness and acidity. Kinda sad when cranberry juice is the best ingredient in the drink. All that being the case, you don't shake this cocktail. You don't stir it fill a glass with ice preferably that plastic cup you got the last sports game you attended back when that was a thing you pour your boozy ingredients in first then you add your juices and you stir it with your finger because you're drinking something called sex on the beach no need to get any dishes dirty for that now is this cocktail rescuable totally in fact there's so many recipes floating around out there it's nearly impossible to pull up two that match and that's because people have effectively used ingredients like grenadine, cassis, chambord, and other more nuanced flavoring agents and acids to give it just a dusting of self-respect. But let's be real. If you come by my place and ask if I can make you a sex on the beach, I'm gonna get a little worried that you're gonna start asking for a slippery nipple or an Irish car bomb next, so maybe don't do that. But if any of you out there do decide to roll up your sleeves and make a riff on this modern classic cocktail that actually tastes good and achieves some sort of uneasy truce between the ingredients, please do tag us on Facebook and Instagram at Modern so that we can learn from your mysterious, magical ways. With that, it's time for us to tackle the unfortunate but very real issue of sexism and sexist language contaminating the spirits we love to drink. My job in this episode, as I see it, is to give you a well-rounded understanding of who Jim Murray is, what he did to get everyone so wound up, and what implications this has for the rest of us who are just minding our own business and happen to like whiskey. So first the backstory, then the initiating incident, and then we get to the juicy stuff. Here are the highlights on Jim. Jim Murray is an English writer and whiskey critic who's been writing about barrel-aged grain-based distillates for the better part of three decades. He started seriously visiting distilleries in the UK in the early to mid-80s, and was self-publishing his thoughts on spirits by the early 90s, which means he's been a force in the whiskey industry for about 30 years. He's also notorious for his Murray Method, a prescriptive 14-step process for judging whiskey. It covers everything from palate cleansing and sensory noise abatement to nosing and evaluation. According to some sources, which means according to Murray himself, he's tasted over 20,000 whiskeys in his lifetime with no intentions of slowing down or stopping anytime soon. Murray's annual publication, The Whiskey Bible, has been in circulation since 2003, and it has reportedly sold over a million copies worldwide. This is where he reviews and revises his reviews on whiskey offerings from around the world, offering tasting notes, which we'll talk about in just a minute, and ratings. Speaking of which, he's well known for scoring whiskeys on a 100-point scale, which has drawn some fire for being either somewhat or hopelessly subjective, depending on where you stand on rating systems. So if you're familiar with wine ratings, you know Robert Parker. If you care about whiskey ratings, you probably know Jim Murray. Hopefully that comparison resonates with a few of you out there. Finally, he's also notorious for bandying about the term best whiskey quite a bit, which is not crazy popular with people who understand that flavor is subjective. Nonetheless, it's great for search engine optimization, and other people, mostly whiskey brands, still wait with bated breath for his yearly best-in-category pronouncements. So, now that you know a little bit about Jim, let's talk about what he wrote, and why some people are pretty upset about it. In a tweet thread on September 20th of this year, Whiskey Expert Becky Paskin, stated, quote, This post will no doubt attract some hate comments, but something needs to be said. Why does the whiskey industry still hold Jim Murray's whiskey Bible in such high regard when his tasting notes are so sexist and vulgar? Next tweet. In the 2020 edition, there are 34 references to whiskey being, quote, sexy, and many more crudely comparing drinking whiskey to having sex with women. Becky Paskin then went on to detail a number of examples from Murray's Whiskey Bible, including the following snippets, which I'm going to read now, so this would be earmuff time for the kids. About Penderin Celt Whiskey, a woman-owned and operated brand, mind you, he writes, If this was a woman, I'd want to make love to it every night, and in the morning and afternoon, if I could find the time and energy. Regarding Canadian Club Chronicle's Water of Windsor, Murray soliloquizes, have I had this much fun with a sexy 41-year-old Canadian before? Well, yes, I have, but it was a few years back now and it wasn't a whiskey. Was the fun we had better? Probably not. He has the following to say about Morangi Artisan Cask. If whiskey could be sexed, this would be a woman. Every time I encounter Morangi artisan, it pops up with a new look, a different perfume and mood. It appears not to be able to make up its mind, but does it know how to pout, seduce, and win your heart? Oh yes. And one last zinger for the road here. Here's his take on Fanny's Bay Tasmanian Bourbon Cask. No port, no sherry, just the wonderful opportunity to taste naked fannies. Little note of cultural translation on that last quote. The term fanny refers to a woman's vagina in the UK. So old Jim ain't talking about licking butts. He's after that W.A.P., as the kids say. Following Paskin's tweet thread, a number of publications within and beyond the spirits industry covered the story, and quite a few brands released public statements in support of her position, which is pretty simple. Quote, The amount of people who read those sorts of comments and assume that it's okay to speak about whiskey in that way is damaging. The message it is sending to the whiskey industry as a whole and to whiskey consumers is that women don't really matter and they are there to be objectified. End quote. That's Becky Paskin's stance. And I think after, you know, hearing some of those tasting notes, we can understand why she is concerned. To wrap up the reporting side of things here so we can get to the good stuff, I'm going to read the full text of Murray's public response to the outrage sparked by Paskin's observations. It's not super short, but one thing I don't want to be accused of here is misrepresenting anything. So here goes, quote, This is not a matter of alleged sexism on the trumped up charges against me, which have clearly been concocted for very clear purposes. This is an attack on the very essence of what it is to be a critic in any sphere, be it music, art, sport, wine, or whiskey. In other words, an attack on free thought and free speech. We are entering very dangerous territory when people try to control the thoughts of others and willfully distort the truth for their own ends. This is now a battle between free speech and humorless puritanism. I am not alone in finding this very sinister. I am not sexist. The Whiskey Bible is not sexist, has never been sexist, and I will not bow to this faux outrage. I have always fought the bully, and I will do so here. Debate has been replaced by the bang of the mob, common sense, and decency by straight-jacketed dogma. Frankly, these people appall me because what they are doing is undermining society itself. How in God's name can, for instance, likening a whiskey to an orgasm be remotely construed as sexist? Last I heard, male, female, transgender people, everyone is capable of an orgasm. I am a professional writer and use a language that adults, for the whiskey bible is designed for adults, can relate to. I paint pictures of a whiskey and if that, on the rare occasion, is the picture or sensation that formulates in my mind, then I say so. As I have every right to. Rather than write interesting, illuminating, and compelling articles about whiskey, other writers would rather engage in cancel culture to bring down the world's most successful author on the subject. Some one million people have bought the Whiskey Bible since it first came out in 2003, and in that time I have not received a single letter, email, or text complaining of its content. Not one. Suddenly, though, this. Several people writing exactly the same thing on the same day. Strange, that. I am famed for my ability to nose a whiskey, and I can tell you that I can smell a huge rat with this entire manufactured and revolting affair. I have dedicated 30 years of my life, longer than anyone else on this planet, fighting for whiskey and the whiskey underdogs so people will discover great whiskies from wherever they may be in the world. This has put quite a few people's noses out of joint. These outrageous and concocted allegations will not derail me in my life's quest. My championing of great whiskey will continue. My freedom of speech will continue, whether these latter-day Cromwellians like it or not." End quote. Sort of reminds me of the end of Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night where the villain Malvolio runs off into the night saying, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. So now that we're all caught up on the scandal, the outing of Jim Murray, and his defiant public response, I hope you'll allow me to explain why Jim and his behavior are so damaging to our world. And my reasoning is probably different from what a lot of folks out there have said so far. As I mentioned earlier, some people have taken a bit of a passive stance, saying essentially, hey, this guy has his own platform, he's self-publishing, and he has the right to print what he wants. He also has a huge following around the world who clearly like his writing, so there's not much we can do to damage him and his platform, etc., etc. Basically the free speech argument. Others have taken the more traditional anti-sexism approach, saying that sexism of any sort is never okay, which is sort of the gender inclusion correlative of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assertion that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And both of those types of responses are fair, measured, and reasoned in their own way, but my first argument against Jim Murray and his language begins with one primary concern. Robustness. I want the spirits and cocktail world to be robust, and robustness requires diversity. Diversity of experience, diversity of flavor, diversity of thought, and of value. You simply cannot have robustness without diversity, and you cannot, by definition, have diversity without women. When you act and write as if you're a dirty old man, people who don't like dirty old men tend to leave the room, and the biggest demographic in that camp is going to be women. Jim, You're creeping out the women, and I don't know if you've been following along here, but we need them. They make our whole industry better and more robust. So could you stop it? That's about as utilitarian as I can make this. If you won't consider stopping because it's the right thing to do, please at least consider doing it on behalf of the industry you claim to champion. You say you've always fought the bully, but right now you're being the bully, which makes you a bit of a hypocrite. Another thing that nobody has really pointed out about Murray's sexed-up whiskey reviews is that they're not useful at all, and they don't make a lot of sense. How does some vague story about an imaginary tryst with a 41-year-old Canadian woman help me decide if I want to spend money on a bottle? Short answer, it doesn't. So you're not even doing your job right, Jim. If you claim to publish these reviews to help people, at the very least, I can say with certainty that the sexualized language isn't getting it done. But if you take a half step back here and consider the evidence, I don't think it's tough to understand why he's doubled down instead of apologizing and doing the right thing. Somewhere along the way, sometime during his 30 years and 20,000 tastings and 1 million copies sold, it became less about the whiskey and more about Jim Murray. Who knows when it happened, but I think the decision to call his 2003 book a Bible just might signal the beginnings of a God complex. As somebody who judges spirits and works very closely with distillers to help make their products and operations as good as possible, my philosophy is simple. What I do is in service of the people who make spirits and the people who enjoy them. And I'll tell you, it's really hard to be of service when everything is about you. When I look at Jim Murray, from the language of his reviews to the handling of the scandal, I'm terrified because... It's possible that I could be looking at an angry, distorted version of myself in thirty years, mumbling about tasting fannies and railing against the mob. And that is deeply unsettling. As it should be. So for myself and for all the other people who have voices in the spirits and cocktail world, I hope Jim Murray serves as the example of what not to do and how not to handle yourself when you have a platform that influences people. When you have the privilege to make a living by commenting on a craft, such as the making of a beautiful whiskey, you need to remember that the craft existed long before you and it will remain long after you die. And that means that you are in service of the craft, not the other way around. So to those of you listening out there who value robustness in our industry, who see that there's no room for sexism in a world where we are called to serve, please keep doing great work and propelling the industry forward. With any luck, Jim Murray will look at the piles and piles of whiskey Bibles that have been taken off the shelves and decide to join us someday. I'm gonna wrap up this episode with a personal story that this whole situation has really reminded me of. If you've made it this far, I trust that you'll stick with me to the end here because this story not only parallels the Jim Murray situation, but also has a few things to say about the where do we go from here question which has been pretty much unaddressed by any of the news that has covered this story so far. My story is about one of the toughest teaching situations I've ever encountered, and it's remained with me as one of the defining moments of my time teaching poetry at the University of Maryland. While I was there, I taught a poetry workshop that was filled with some pretty talented students. And If you're not familiar with what a poetry workshop looks like, it's very intimate. Everyone submits work for all the other students to evaluate, and then we come in every class, circle the desks, and literally workshop each piece of art. We critique them, not unlike a spirits judge reviews a glass of whiskey. As you can imagine, it's a bit of a delicate process, and it's easy to get upset and take things personally when you've poured your heart and soul into the work. So being a good citizen of the workshop was always something I very strongly enforced, because without that respect and good intention, it's easy for the class to descend into nitpicking and petty criticism. As it happened, for the final workshop of the semester, I had a male student submit a poem called Monday Morning Rape which was basically the whiny diatribe of a hungover college student walking to class and describing how awful the world looks. Very Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye, and it was about as compelling as it sounds from that description. The one image from that poem that still sticks in my mind is the, quote, piss and shit colored leaves that the speaker of the poem treads over on his trek across campus. That's the kind of writing we were dealing with here. Leading up to the workshop, I got several emails from female students saying that they needed to leave the class instead of workshopping the poem because they had either experienced sexual abuse in their personal life or just couldn't be civil to the student who submitted it. And so I said, of course, you know, do what you gotta do, I get it. But that didn't solve the problem. I still had to face up to the situation in front of a class full of young, intelligent people who had worked incredibly hard all semester. So here's what I ended up doing. To celebrate the last workshop, I had everyone do the same five-minute free-write exercise that I used to begin the semester. The prompt was simply, what is a poem? Except this time I encouraged them to come up with some fun metaphors for what a poem is and how it works, since suddenly they were experts after an intensive few months in the workshop. After the five minutes were up, We all went around one by one and shared our thoughts. A poem is an onion because it has layers. A poem is a puzzle with no correct answer. A poem is an out of body experience without leaving your body. You get the idea. After we were done going around the room, I kind of suspected that this particular group of students wasn't going to let me get away without giving them my answer. So I had one prepared. A poem is a gift. And this is the metaphor I use to explain the invisible contract that exists between poet and reader, even though the poet and the reader in most cases never meet one another, just like the person who makes a spirit and the person who picks it up off a shelf and pours it into a glass never meet one another. I'll spare you the details of our experience later, workshopping that awful Monday morning rape poem, except to say that it was rough. No one had anything positive to say about it, and both the class and the student who wrote it were visibly upset. In the end, I was able to explain that it failed as a poem because it failed as a gift. Not to say that sad or angry or generally negative poems can't be gifts. If that was the case, then the majority of poetic canon would be right out the window. But this poem was too self-absorbed to effectively honor the contract between poet and reader which at the end of the day creates a brief moment of recognition and kinship between the force that crafted the work and the person who consumes it as art. Even though this audio essay contains a lot of criticism for Jim Murray and his sexualization of whiskey reviews, it's not a call for cancellation because that doesn't solve anything. In a perfect world, Jim Murray would take the 2021 edition of The Whiskey Bible and revise his work With new eyes and a fresh palette, just like that male student took that poem, gutted it during his revision process, and turned in something so stunningly different that I was compelled to give him an A on the assignment, partially for the work on the page, and partially for the work he needed to do in his own head to make it possible. What's sad is that I doubt that student ever came to pick up his revised portfolio with my written comments on it, From the English department office at the end of finals week. Most students just don't, and then the portfolios are sent off to the shredder. If he did pick it up, he would have read about how impressed I was by the transformation and conscientiousness he displayed. But I think he may have just been too wounded by the initial negative reception from me and from the class to bear risking any further embarrassment or criticism. If there's anything I regret from that whole situation, it's that I didn't make more of an effort to connect with the student after the fact and reinforce the good work. And this is my way of saying that, while I'm glad so many people have come together to correct Jim Murray's sexist whiskey reviews, I hope we haven't created an atmosphere that prevents him from changing for the better. Because if we really take seriously the idea of an inclusive industry, it needs to be an industry where Jim Murray is able to come back to the table and give things another shot. I'm Modern Barkhart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for permitting me this editorial. I hope I managed to color in some of the nuance that gets lost in tweet threads and the industry news cycle. And I hope most importantly, that you have the chance to taste a great whiskey sometime soon. Just remember, sex is not a tasting note. Thanks for listening. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed and a little bit of storytelling magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production copyright 2020.